Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this is just about as holy grail as a guest can get on this podcast for us. This time, we are talking to Andrew Ferris of InXS. Regular listeners know how strongly I feel about InXS. I think they are one of the most important and greatest rock bands in history. And I don't think they get enough credit for that. In fact, I know they don't. I actually get kind of emotional in this interview, worked up. It was very cathartic for me to be able to express these thoughts and feelings and opinions to the man himself. I'm probably even a little too emotional, to be honest. I don't know how journalistic I come off on this one, but oh well. This was my chance to talk to Andrew Ferris, and I went for it. Now, if you don't know, Andrew, believe it or not, is going country. He has a country album. We don't know when it's going to come out yet. It was supposed to have come out a couple of months ago, but COVID has kind of pushed that to the side. And he's very He takes the high road on that when I ask him about it. A couple of songs are already out there. One is Come Midnight and one is Good Mama Bad. So get on YouTube or wherever you got to get on to check these songs out. It's amazing to hear one of the greatest songwriters in rock history go country. In fact, <laughs> so I ask him about that. That's like my first question out of the gate. Why would Andrew Ferris go country? And the next like half hour is pretty much him explaining how that could be. He's so passionate about this. The last hour is us going deep on NXS. Almost album by album, all the highlights, the lowlights. We talk about the impact of Mystify, that new Michael Hutchins documentary that is making a lot of waves. It's beautiful if you haven't seen it, and it's on Amazon Prime. And uh, so I get to kind of relive or live out some of my dreams talking to a member of NXS about the fantastic music they made. Okay? Um, I hope you enjoy this. If you are a fan of NXS, I don't know how you couldn't. I guarantee you, I feel pretty strong I could, strong saying that I don't know that there's another interview quite like this about an excess out there anywhere. So I hope you enjoy this. He called me from his home out in the wilds of Australia. Well, good. Okay, now we got to start with the obvious stuff here because I don't think anyone saw Andrew Ferris one of the finest pop rock songwriters in history. You're going to get a lot of love from me in this conversation, Andrew. One of the best songwriters in history putting out country music. Someone born with a silver spoon, anything they want. Someone born to a backstreet mother with a needle in her arm. None of us really have a choice when we're coming to the world. We just open our eyes, it's a roll of the dice for every boy and 
Right. Yeah, well, good point. I suppose the place where it came from for me is, well, first of all, I've always been a fan hmm. of the country music genre. Uh, and, and you, you know, I know it sounds like cliche, but it's true. It's all about the song. Mm-hmm. And, and especially country music, you know, they, that's one of the things that really, me being a songwriter, that's the main thing I've done in my, in my artistic career in music, is that it's all about the song. And what, you know, drew me towards country music more and more as I've, you know, gone through life is that, you know, commercial pop and rock or whatever, whatever genre it is, EDM, whatever it is, it keeps changing and they keep fiddling around with the basic dynamics of it. But you know what? If the song's no good, it's no good. Mm. And that's one of the things that with country that, you know, some of the earlier uh, country uh, music writers, you know, your Hank Williamses and, mm. you know, Willie Nelsons, Johnny Cash's and all these, uh, the early writers. Sure, they, they were living in different times, in different social structures, kind of, kind of, than we mm-hmm. have now. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, a lot of the messages and things they were saying, there's some of them still ring true today, mm. which tells me that it's not, you know what I mean? It's not so much the, the radio platform or it's not so much the, you know, whether it's cool or hip or, or it's out of fashion or whatever, it's just that, you know, the writing of those songs to me, and, and I, when I I listen to uh, some of that music and I, that I'm a fan of as well, there's a kind of grittiness to some of it. Mm-hmm. Some of the recordings aren't particularly brilliant, you know, like mm-hmm. clever, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, like sophisticated or whatever, but they're just, they're just damn good songs. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's what really drew me more and more I suppose to actually making a country of, or I call it my country rock album more. Okay. And also I call it, there's some Australiana culture mm. in my, that's going to be on my album. It's going to come out, but there's also some Americana, you know, mm. cowboy stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And the reason there's another jig, jigsaw puzzle here is believe it or not during my entire music career, well, at least the, the last sort of 30 years of it, I've been involved with agriculture, okay? Mm. And I, I, it's not like the, you know, the entertainment industry is in, you know, is in serious trouble right now because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But ironically, you know, the agricultural industry, you know what? Everybody needs food. True. You know? True. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to feel a lot happier listening <laughs> to the radio if you're eating good food, right? Very true. You know? Yeah. Right. And, you know, so that, that's another thing is that I live out in the country. You know, I, most of my, my friends are, I guess, hicks, you'd call them country hicks or just, okay. 
you know, different cultural backgrounds, but we kind of share a common, you know, we live off the, the beaten track. I, I, I live five miles off a sealed road. You know? Really? Yeah, to get to the front gate of my farm, you know. Okay. Um, and, but that, that doesn't mean that I hide under a rock. Like yeah. I'm very aware of most stuff that's going on around, and my wife's uh, Marlena. She's uh, from Dayton, Ohio, and uh, you know we have, we have family there in the U.S. There's another jigsaw piece here that I want to join up because you asked me, you know, about the country music thing. Yeah, Dayton, Ohio is about five five and a half hours drive to Nashville. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting, met- not to cut you off, but about three years ago, I think, I was in Nashville, and uh, you were there. And I, all my friends, there was this buzz, like, you guys, Andrew Ferris is here. We weren't sure where, but one of them bumped into you somewhere and got a picture. And so this this country idea, or I don't know, project, or however you want to call it, I ge- I'm guessing has been gestating for you for a while now, because that was, like I said, that was three years ago. And I think you were there planning out this country move of yours, right? Yeah, right, right. You're right. And that, that, that's, that's good. Cause that's in line with where I was headed. Okay. And so I'll follow on that tra- train of thought. Yeah. Andrew Farris is in the building. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. That, that was yeah. the buzz for the yes. moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> but look, I, I think, that's funny. Uh, but I was going to say that I think that for me, one of the things that attracted me to Nashville was as an Aussie, you know, and, and, and then having family now in the U.S. and driving long distances for us in Australia, you know, is not really a huge issue. You know, we're used to it, you know. So I, I sort of figured like, well, Nashville's just around the corner from, yeah. from Dayton, Ohio. So. Yeah. I started to drive there, and that's probably when I met your friends or folks or whatever. Oh yeah. And, yeah, you know, I just started visiting the town. I started to meet people. And because of my the background of my, my music career, I got some doors open. I was pretty mm-hmm. lucky to meet some really interesting people. Mm-hmm. And I started working with people, uh, you know, not some famous, some not famous, some, mm-hmm. some older, some younger people. But I, I began to, you know, realized that something important was happening to me where I, you know, for years I'd always loved this genre of music, but you kind of, you know, when you work in one genre of music, whether it's rock or classical or, or hip hop or whatever you're doing and you're seriously down that road, mm-hmm. you can be a bit exclusive sometimes, you know, you mm-hmm. can think, oh, well, it's, you know, this is the, the, what I'm into and that's all I ever do. But I've never really been like that. With NXS, we worked in 52 countries. Uh, I lived in Europe for nearly five years. Of course, I live in Australia now, but I have family in the U.S., so you can already see mm-hmm. that as I'm talking to you, you know, I've been around a bit. Um, sure. You know, so, you know, and, and so therefore, to me, I always look at music as just a beautiful big landscape to draw influences from where around the world, yeah. not just from one genre of music, you know. Yeah. But the reason that, I'll come back to the jigsaw piece. The reason that I ended up in Nashville is it was kind of like a, what was going on was a, I hadn't seen this for a lot of years, a kind of movement, if you like, of people with like-minded ideas that wanted to write music and, and just, you know, that art thing, you know, where, where so much of the modern music industry is controlled by accountants and lawyers or whatever. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. They're just people who are drawn to be artistic together. Mm-hmm, and I went, you mm-hmm. know what? That's very cool. You know what I mean? It's not about, 
you know, sure, everyone wants a lucky break and they want to get their song heard or they want to be whatever they think they want to mm-hmm. be, famous or whatever it is. Or, or as Woody Allen once said, I think it was, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intention. Oh, right. But I think my point is, is that I think for me, I began to go there and realize, look, if I just be open-minded and, and contribute artistically, but listen and learn, I might learn something. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah. You know, and that's what I did. I dropped all my kind of like whatever preconceptions of what I thought country music or Nashville was all about. And I started to work with people. Then mm. I began to actually make friends with some of these people. who are still nice. my very good friends. And then that began to change for me too, where I began to feel like you do when you have friends or family. I guess an emotional attachment uh, sure. a little bit to what I, the genre I was working on. I began to realize, you know what, I, I like these people. Right. Um, I like the people I'm working with. I like the, I like their philosophies. I get this, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing, another jigsaw piece that drew me in. And then last but not least, which is the last thing I expected, we both started this conversation talking about Montana and Wyoming. Well, yeah. yeah. In all those tours that I did within Excess, you know, we did just in the U.S. alone, I think, the 19... 80s to early 90s, I think in excess did 13 three-month tours by road of the United States. Mm. Our tour bus ran off the road on the first tour we did, believe it or not. We Whoa. almost died. We almost hit, hit a concrete underpass. But anyway, the, the point is, is that during those years, you know, you'd roll through, just like anybody who's reading this would understand, that, especially if you've lived it, you roll from one town to the other, and at first it's really exciting, and after a while you give up looking at the road back because you have no idea where you are. Yeah. You know, you know what you're doing, but you yeah. don't know where you are yeah. and even why you're there sometimes. But anyway, yeah. and it gets into this really bizarre thing, you know, but anyway, yeah. so you, you deal with that. But the point is, is that, you know, you often are going from industrialized, you know, commercial towns, whether they're small or the big cities or whatever, but you don't get into the great outdoors and if you are, you're usually asleep or you're traveling to a show. Mm-hmm. True. You don't actually yeah. get out. You know, you don't get out and and find yourself, you know, with an explorer's mm-hmm. uh, compass and a, yeah. you know what I mean, and a backpack yeah. and go mountain climbing. True. Yeah. You've got gigs, you know, you got you got gigs to do. You know, so right. you don't have the luxury of being a tourist in that sense. You know. Right. But what happened was that the thing I didn't expect to happen was. I started going to Nashville, started working with people. I kind of knew what I was doing. I enjoyed the songwriting part of it. I didn't actually think I was going to make a country-style recordings at all. Mm. Then what happened to me was, I didn't see this coming, was my wife, Marlena, and I decided to go on a horse-riding, I guess a dude ranch or something. So we decided to, and then I thought, oh, this would be good, you know, you We'll go to some area and they'll, they'll have like little pony rides and uh, some tequila shots and girls with bikinis walking around or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this will be, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then in the end, what we said was, no, we we kind of changing our mind. What we really want to do is do a serious horse riding thing because we really? live in the country. We have horses. We have livestock, you know. Yeah. So that's what we got. We ended up down on the Mexican border between, well, a little town on the very corner of the state of New Mexico where it meets the border of Arizona and on okay. the Mexican border, literally right there, okay? Mm-hmm. And there was a, a couple who had a hideout ranch 
is what they called it. And they had a spread of land there that was a really picturesque, beautiful area. A lot of uh, what I didn't see coming was a heck of a lot of history in that area, you see. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, the art head part of me, we got sore asses from riding horses all day, literally. <sighs> We rode through some amazing national monument areas with this couple, uh, Craig and Tam Lawson. And Craig uh, sadly passed away mm. uh, about a couple of years back now. And he was a, a real mentor to me uh, for U.S. Old West uh, history, including right. you know, the Apache Indians, the Mexicans, uh, the U.S. Cavalry, uh, the Cowboys up the road there in Tombstone, mm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm riding around going, you know, it's funny, but I go back to Nashville. No one's writing about this stuff. Right. And yet, <laughs> you see what I mean? And here I yeah. am riding a horse around these areas. Yeah. And then I started thinking more about the early country guys, like your Willie Nelsons and Roy Rogers and all these people, and, you know, the singing cowboy guys. And I started going, now I get it. Mm. It went from folk music and classical instruments like you know, a violin became a fiddle and then a banjo mm-hmm. was an instrument put together by people that, that were trying to make more noise and they figured out putting a drum and strings together worked. And yep. and so next minute, you've got this whole movement of music with people probably didn't have much money or you know had a lot of time on their hands and a lot of talent, but didn't know what to do with it all. And then you had this whole movement thing come out of it. And you see where I'm heading? And then I started yeah. thinking about the top cultural dynamic of these people that lived and died in these areas and I went now I get it I really yeah. get this now yeah you know? uh, so I went back to Nashville and and I, I think I worked with Frank Myers and a great uh, old school Nashville writer um, and I was sitting with Frank and he goes so what are we writing about I said I don't want to write another pop Nashville type song he said, what are we doing? I said, I want to write about the Old West. <laughs> and he said, great. <laughs> no one's doing that. And I said, yeah, yeah. you got it. Yeah. And, that, and that's where, it, you see what I mean? It started, yeah. it ignited something in me I didn't see coming. I went, okay, now I can see a highway now that no one's on. Right. No one's doing this. Yeah. No one's writing about the very culture of the movement that started in the first place. It's I don't know what true. they're all writing about. You know, but that's yeah. where it started. And yeah. right. And and that's how I, Andrew Farris, got to be involved and got really into it was I started going, Now I know why I'm doing this and what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Because before that it was like I don't know, it was sort of I'd seen very similar things to Nashville and other parts of the world, including Europe and Australia, where I'd seen people writing within different music genres in that pop commercial sense. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't, you know what, I'll, I'll take little bits of that as I need it, but that's not really what I want to do. What I really want to do is explore, say, Australiana or Americana and all these other, other cultural movements of music and, and, and the instruments they used and explore that more, you know, because right. to me that, that is really the part that got me excited where I thought mm-hmm. now, now I know how, how to do this. I mean, we, I've only been able to hear the two songs, obviously, that have come out. Good Mama Bad and Come Midnight. I love Come Midnight. Right. I think it's great. And I could never find a girl like you. Someone who understands me. 
Right. I, you know, country music now, especially, it veers more toward almost pop rock. You know, it's kind of the pop music of this genre. We, no one listens to pop music with guitars anymore, on the radio anyway. But country music has sort of filled that void a little bit. But yours is rootsier. You know, you're going back to the source. Like you were saying, it's not that highway that you're on by yourself is... It's a rootsier one. It's a more authentic. It's more, it goes back to the old days versus a variation on whatever's hip and current about co today's country music. Does that make sense? It does, although, I, I yes, you're partly right. I do pay respect, though, to modern country and radio. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that to please people. I mean that. I like a lot of stuff that's on modern country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for that area. Sure. And I think... You know, I think people like guitars and music. I don't care what anyone says. People do, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I like I like messing around with computers, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that, you know, but there's nothing like playing a, a real instrument. True. You know, with, with, with people who aren't robots. There's something organic that happens. And I, this is going to sound like a funny thing to say. And sometimes it's because of human error. It makes the most brilliant recordings. Not because you're perfecting everything, but because it isn't perfect, That's and those exactly imperfections right. appeal to to us, yeah. to, to to our you know our, our, our organic beings because they're not perfect. No one's perfect. Nothing's mm -hmm. perfect. Mm -hmm. And a machine keeps trying to make everything perfect. You right. know, right. And, I, and I think there's something a little weird about that. But then again. You know, I'm just throwing this around that technology has done some incredible things, especially in the field of medicine mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and in music technology and whatever, you know, so many technologies. But really, at the end of the day, you know, it's like iRobot. Do we control it or does it control us? Very know? true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So what's the plan now? I mean, I think you and I were actually supposed to talk about two and a half months ago. And it got it got shelved because of the album, because of Corona and everything. But what's the plan right. now? When when is this album going to come out? Oh, oh, oh that you mean the worldwide pandemic? Yeah, 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 right. See, yeah. There's a little yeah, thing that. going on right now. It's you know, it's <laughs> yeah. just a little nuisance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really, a little, little nuisance. Yeah, it kills uh -huh. people. That's right. right. Yeah, I think the world is struggling with a lot of things right mm -hmm. now. And because of that, you know, like probably so many other people that had so many other plans and whatever things that we're trying to work on or whatever, I just, in the end, I just 
I went, you know, look, I'm lucky to be here and be alive and have my family and friends and to be able to put food on the table. It's cool. I'm lucky right yeah. now. It's okay. Yeah. Everything's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and my music, you know, it'll just have to wait. And, and in the meantime, I've been a bit creative. I've been doing other things. I can't help it. It's part of my DNA. Good, good. Because I'm a creative person, you know. So I, I'll keep working on something, even though I'm already supposed to be <laughs> putting mm -hmm. that other thing out. I'll, I'll continue working on whatever I'm doing. But the thing is that, yeah, I've, I've still got an album coming out. I just can't tell you exactly when, but I'm feeling good about one thing, though. I'm getting a lot of people asking me, you know, when is my album due out and what are you doing? So it's like, it, it, I think if nobody cared, I'd be like, well, I don't know. I don't care <laughs> either, right. you know. Right. They seem to really want to know. And so I'm yeah. curious now. So I, yeah. now I'm, I'm excited about it in a way, and I Good. appreciate you asking me. And, but I can't give you an exact date, but I can okay. say this, that I will have something else. Okay. Well, good. I won't good. say what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, I want to keep a foot in the marketplace, I guess, best way to say it, to keep my music. <laughs> coming out but i think the thing is that where i got to with it all um you know in, in the first place like i was saying was that you know i really felt that because i live in the country i can drive you know i have tractors and i have a ute and i, I that is my that is my day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. you know? um <laughs> right you know i live like that you know mm -hmm. and so therefore to me you know sure you know and I may write more on that style of just fun, kind of enjoyable things good. to do like that that are more sort of relaxing and, and sort of just, I don't know, feel good stuff like that. But then again, you know, I also, you know, I can't help it. I, at one point I, I was a traveler, you know, and I saw mm -hmm. a lot of the world. Mm -hmm. And the world's a big place. It's got a lot going mm -hmm. on. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you all get along now, you know. <laughs> um, you know? Okay. Yeah. And, and, well, we'll um, see so, what happens you know, like then, I, I guess. Sounds like you've got a lot of things, yeah. a lot of creative juices going on right now in various directions, and we'll see where they go. Well, that's that's right. And I think part of me, too, is, you know, I really I feel very fortunate that I, you know, I've got to, I've got to add this, that when I first started working with, with people in Nashville, guys and girls, they embraced me and they, they you know, that kind of just opened doors for me that I I didn't really fully understand mm. at first, like what was happening. And then I realized, you know, I feel really lucky to be doing this with these yeah. guys and they don't yeah. have to do this with me, right. you know? And that's important mm. for me to put in the mix here. I'm looking forward to the album. I mean, I like what I've heard and I like everything you do. So we'll see what happens. Can we, uh, can we get yeah. a little nerdy about In Excess for a minute? Yeah, we can go there. I just want to think of one more word oh. that someone used to describe some of the music I've been doing. They call it kind of outlaw country. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That in, makes sense. Yes. In that, you know what I mean? In that old, I do. Uh, in the older school style of like, like where you had the highwaymen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Fresno, you know, like, California, uh, or Bakersfield, California scene. Yeah. Buck Owens, Hee Haw, Roy Clark, that kind of stuff. I get it. Exactly. And I, and I feel really comfortable in that genre of people. Um, you know, and I've been fortunate to meet many amazingly talented people because of my career over the years. But I think one of my greatest experiences was meeting John Fogarty, you know, who actually oh, wrote yeah. mm -hmm. 
you know, looking out my back door about the mm-hmm. Buck Owens feel, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. It's funny how the world's sort of connected like that. Like, what's a guy from Australia doing talking to <laughs> John Fogarty about a cultural icon, you know, from, from the yeah. back end of country music? It's, right. Right? You know? Right. Like, but that part of where the world's gotten a bit smaller is important for, I think, a more peaceful approach to, to understanding other cultures in the world. I'll leave that there. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're. I uh, I'm, I agree with you on that. And I should mention, of course, Merle Haggard, and he's uh, you know right. kind of the godfather of that scene. I didn't mention him before, but I should. Yes, you're right. That outlaw country sound. That's my favorite kind of country, by the way. So that's uh, that's probably why I especially like what I've heard from you. Okay, let's let's get a little nerdy about NXS for a minute. I have right. millions of questions, but I'll I'll taper it down. One of the ones I want to come I want to ask specifically is what yeah. happened around Shabu Shaba that made you guys transform in from the kind of skittery ska inflected almost post punk band that you were before to the beginning stages of the giants that you would become. And I ask because I've had Mark Opitz on here and I love him and we talked a lot about you and I am curious if it was working with Mark that he got something out of you, if it was something in your songwriting at the time that had progressed, what happened in that moment that made it all come together? Well, I'm glad you talked to Mark because I was going to mention his name and that Mark Opitz has to be one of Australia's or perhaps Australia's greatest record producer ever. Yep. Um, and he's a very, very, very clever guy. Uh, and I don't mean that, you know, lightly. I mean, and he's very, very experienced, not just within Australia, but he's worked with a lot of other acts outside of Australia. And so, you know, he has a very broad understanding. And when we first started recording Shabu Shabar, with Mark, I knew from the, the very first song we did with him, which was the one thing.
We recorded that song first. Mm. And how that song came about was Michael Hutchins, myself, and Kirk Pengilly from In Excess. We did like a, I guess, a reconnaissance trip, if you like. And we flew from Sydney to LA, then we went to New York, and we went to London. Mainly Michael and I, Ben Kirk, to a certain degree, were songwriting on the on that trip as we travelled around. Okay. And we met various people. We met, you know, we went out to clubs, you know, to see what people were dancing to or listening to at that time, you know, nightclubs or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and fashionable places to see what, you know, listen to the radio a lot just immersed ourselves in the culture of those cities. But when we got to New York, we, we got to meet Bob Clearmountain. Mm. And we, from the first writing trip that we did in London, Michael and I wrote the one thing and then we recorded it with Mark Opitz. And I remember playing it to Bob Clearmountain and it was Kirk and Michael and I were staying there. And, during that trip to New York, we did, the three of us had gone on top of the World Trade Centers, you know? Oh, wow. But we were talking to Bob, and Bob said, <laughs> which is what I've always loved about Bob Clearman, and why we he ended up mixing two of our of In Excess's albums is because Bob turns around and goes, what do you want me to do? I love this. Fantastic. Just put it on radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But that's funny because that's one of the things that makes him a genius, Bob Clearman, yeah. is that yeah. he doesn't, when he hears something he likes, instead of putting himself in front of it or his ego or whatever, he just goes, no, that's, that's great the way it is, you mm-hmm. know? And, and that part of him immediately endeared me to him because I thought, well, if he likes it, other people are going to like it. And that's mm-hmm. what exactly what happened mm-hmm. is we put it on radio, we you know, shot videos, and it was in, within biblical proportions that at the same time MTV was championing music and music television you know, videos yep. and all of that. And given the tyranny of distance between Australia and the rest of the world, we were making a lot of videos. We always did. Yeah. And that helped us hugely, you know, because yeah. we already knew what we were doing within yeah. that art form, or we thought we did. Yeah. But the point is, is that, so that with Mark Opitz, you know, producing that song, the one thing, we thought, well, let's just finish the whole album with Mark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We went back and we and we, we tracked the rest of the, you know, Michael and I did a lot more songwriting and we tracked the rest of the album uh, with Mark. And, and I'm really, you know, pleased with that album. Uh, also, the previous two albums, you're right, were these sort of Scar-influenced, and a lot of it was very synthesized, uh, like mm-hmm. kind of out there weird stuff too, mm-hmm. you know. It was. Um some of it could be cartoon music. You know? <laughs> Good um, point. <laughs> you know, bizarre. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I, I could hear some of it on The Simpsons. But I think the point is, is that I think what really happened there was that the first two albums that NXS recorded before Shabu Shabar were really, when I think about it carefully, we had virtually no support from our record label. We were struggling to put food into our mouths during mm-hmm. those years. Mm-hmm. we had nothing and we just rolled around in, in our own cars or a little van or whatever just like many young bands still do today mm-hmm. and we had nothing you know so most of our recordings were really like a soundtrack for our live shows mm-hmm. it, okay. we didn't think of ourselves you know we didn't think of ourselves as a recording artist mm-hmm. like today it seems surreal because you've got kids that'll come straight out of nowhere 
go on a television show, become some household name instantly, and have mm -hmm. a recording career. Yeah, I don't know, I should say, if a lot of people are even that familiar with those first two NXS albums. They don't go that deeply back, some of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. And, like, uh, well, the other thing that I think that you put your finger on here is that that album, Shabu Shabar, was really the beginning of our international career. Before that, we were just really a pub band experimenting yeah. with recordings. You know, we really hadn't embarked on, on if I can put it, in, you know, in brackets, taking on the world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which i remember we did after we released that you know, the second album yeah. underneath the colors before shabu shabar we had a meeting in a in a little motel in melbourne in australia and the band did with our manager at the time and and we said where are we going with all this you know mm -hmm. what are we trying to do right. and we kind of look at each other like most bands you don't you don't want to get to the gritty truth of it mm-hmm you just want to make music, right? Right. But, you know, we all kind of looked at each other and we went, well, what's next? You know? Mm -hmm. So we, then we thought, well, why don't we take on something bigger? And of course, that's it's like the thing of how do you eat an elephant? Well, just one bite at a time, right? <laughs> right. You know? Right. So we, you know, uh -huh. so we decided, well, it's not that I would ever eat an elephant. What a beautiful animal. But the point is, is that in order to take on what we decided to take on, we, we, we actually made a decision between mm. us guys, which I think was quite exceptional for being young young guys. But anyway, so we decided to take the world on. Yeah. And that's what happened. And that yeah. album was the beginning of that part it was. of our career. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And um and I mean you know this, it's bookended by two of my favorite in excess songs and two of the mother of all in excess songs. You got the one thing at the beginning and don't change at the end.
I feel like Don't Change has sort of, it's risen almost near the top of beloved in excess songs. And um, maybe you feel that way too. I don't know. Maybe this is just my outsider's perspective. What was, tell us the story of the creation of Don't Change. I believe in your dynamic with Michael, you were primarily the music and he was the lyrics. But you tell me. Yeah. You tell me where this song came yeah, from. Yeah, well, 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 okay. First of all, the song is credited from a songwriting perspective to everyone in the band uh, to okay. an excess. And I think, that's, I think that's appropriate. Yeah. And I'm glad it's that way. But that's not exactly how I remember it happening, but I'm, I'm cool with that. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Because I miss my brothers and I love the other guys in the band, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But to me, a lot of it was about the comradeship that we had, or mateship's a better word. And I think that as mates, you know, within the band, we just got in a room and I probably threw some music ideas in that, that melody, you know, the synthesizers and all that stuff. You know, uh, Michael came up with that wonderful, optimistic kind of lyric in the song. Mm -hmm. Although he never wrote a third verse, which I find kind of funny in the background. But anyway. <laughs> that's true. It's true. He had a last verse. But anyway, that's cool, you know. Yeah. Because it works, you know. Yeah, it and, does. And uh, interestingly enough, too, you know, so many bands and artists over the years have recorded that song from different countries, including from within Australia, but... You know, Bruce Springsteen played it when he came out to Australia and yeah. Smashing Pumpkins, I think, were running around playing it. Matchbox 20 were playing it, you know, overseas. I know in, in the mm -hmm. U.S. for a while. I know that because they dedicated the song to my wife, Mylena, when she was there at one of their gigs. Oh, wow. And, um, nice. Which was sweet of them. They're, they're a good bunch of guys. Anyway, mm -hmm. so it, it was, uh, you know, I get on well with those people. But the thing is, I think that as a songwriter, you know, I sit back now, John, and I think to myself, okay, you know, Michael's gone, and man, I really miss that guy. He's like a brother yeah. to me and the rest of the guys in the band, you know? Yeah. But you can't turn back the hands of time. Mm -hmm. It's just what happened happened, and you kind of deal with it. And we all lose, lose loved ones and friends in the end, I guess. Yeah. But I think, I think to me, the, the as a songwriter, I'm very, very proud of the work and very, very, you know, overwhelmed and humbled mm -hmm. that people of stature and who have had very significant careers still love to play our music live. They yeah. love playing it. And they, they say that to me, you know, yeah. and I'll, I'll go, wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like, I, don't, I don't take that lightly. That's not an ego thing. In fact, it, I, I, it's a cultural thing. It's not about the charts. It's not about money. Mm -hmm. It's not about fame. It's about culture. It's about you. When you do that, and what happens is when people start to circulate your songs in a cultural sense, you become entrenched in that culture of that country. Right, and, right. and yeah, you know, that, that's, yeah. A, that's a very serious thing. That's beyond, you know, money, mm -hmm. fame, charts. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other deal. Mm -hmm. I, like I said, I don't, I don't take that lightly. And I'm sure I feel some spiritual peace for Michael. Mm -hmm. For him to know that that, yeah. that that work that we did and effort we put into all that work that we did, and as a group of people we did, meant something. Yeah. Oh, it does. I'm just going to blurt out my opinion because I I love you so much. I am of the opinion that In Excess are one of the greatest pop rock bands in history. And the thing that 
frustrates me to no end is that I feel like you guys don't get quite enough credit for that. And I think one of the reasons I wonder if, because sometimes in excess, I notice gets labeled as an eighties band. And I always think that that is so wrong. Not that I love the eighties and I, I have no, I have no problem. I love eighties music, but to say that in excess had its moment just in one decade and it's sound of one decade is so reductive. It drives me crazy. And my thinking is if, great brilliant pop rock songs were that easy to write and record everybody would be doing it and they don't and you and michael made millions of them and that is a miracle that is a miracle that you guys have the catalog that you have and that it's as strong as it is no one else can do that and it drives me crazy when people don't see that so anyway i had to just vomit my opinion all over you because I just love you Thank so much you. and I feel so strongly about this. And I wonder if, I don't right. know if maybe because, I don't know, it tapered off near the end or something in terms of popularity, but it, it does that for everybody. So why, you know, anyway, it just, it drives me nuts. Now, okay, I had to get that off my chest because I've been waiting my whole life to be able to tell you that. But anyway, um, I am curious wow. now. Yes, with the Mystify documentary out now and it's, I feel like some of this recontextualization is starting to happen, that people are seeing this documentary and they're incredibly moved by it. And they're seeing, they're remembering how great you guys were as a unit for so long. Are you noticing that too? And I'm curious if the mystified documentary being out there, is it comforting to you that the story's being told or does it make you feel vulnerable? Is it opening up old wounds? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, you know, John, it's a, it's a combination of both. That's the okay. truth of it. The mm -hmm. truth of it is, I, you know, what I've learned with this business, the entertainment industry, is you can't have one without the other. In other mm -hmm. words, you know, not many people, you know, get to live a smooth existence and get to do the kinds of stuff that we did. It doesn't work like that. It, it, in that sense, the entertainment industry is actually a dangerous industry. Mm -hmm. you, know, you are, to a certain degree, you, know, you become exposed to things that, like say, normal people don't even have to ever think about. You know, although mm -hmm. social media and modern electronics is putting people at risk in that sense, mm -hmm. they they are now suddenly find themselves out beyond their depths because mm -hmm. they're not used to having to to deal with a public platform. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but I'm just saying that, yes, to answer your question, I think, you know, that the, the world definitely has changed. And I think that with the change of the world, the changes within and of the world that have happened in excess, strangely enough, and I've been told this before by the younger generation of fans, you know, by Matchbox 20, The Killers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other acts have said to me and to my friends in the band, my brothers, the weird thing within excess is we hear your music on the radio and it sounds strangely contemporary. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's timeless. You know, it is. Yeah, it, doesn't, and, it doesn't date. And, and I, and I, right. And I, yeah. and I think it's because that we were in that sense, in ironically in the eighties and even, even the nineties, we were a really difficult group of people 
to pigeonhole. The labels were always frustrated with us because we didn't do what everybody did. And we didn't just play one style of rock music. We didn't just play one easy format for radio. We mm-hmm. didn't we didn't tick all the boxes that enable some people to have interstellar sort of careers. We mm-hmm. experimented a lot. We used synthesizers, you know, with electric guitars, which wasn't very normal in the beginning either. It is now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back then it wasn't. And we were doing stuff that that some people were like, well, what is this? This is kind of weird. You know, like, and I think now, all these years later, some people now go, I can't kind of get this because that's what everybody else is doing now. Right, right. You know? It's an example of the finest pop, rock, dance, funk, whatever kind of music can possibly be made in excess embodies what that is. And uh, anyway, that's I. these are opinions that I've held strongly for a long time. Now, I got to ask you something. We have some Patreon members, and they're allowed to submit questions. And by far, the question that I got the most often was, why did you guys only do one song with Nile Rodgers, Original Sin? You might know of the original sin. And you might know how to be with fire. Everyone wants to know, why was it just the one? Why was it not an album? And then I've got another even nerdier question about that relating to if you know whether it was Duran 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 heard Nile doing Original Sin and that's what got them to want to get Nile to come produce them and forge that relationship. Do you have any insight on this? I think that may be true. I don't know. But I do know. I, I can tell you this. When we recorded Original Sin, how that came about was Nile Rogers came backstage when we were performing in Canada and um, he came back to meet us and we'd been listening to his Land of the Good Groove album mm-hmm. on the tour bus mm-hmm. and we thought, you know, this guy is just amazing what he's yeah. done with Sheik and on his own or whatever and then I think our management reached out to him. He came backstage to, to meet us And I couldn't believe he's standing in the room talking to us, these young guys from Australia. Mm -hmm. And then he said, look, I'd love to track a song with you guys. And so we were touring around anyway. So when we were on the tour bus, Mark and I, I had already put the demo together with the guitar riffs and all that Mm -hmm. and the chords for Original Sin. And Michael worked on the lyric. He'd seen some kids playing in the schoolyard of different, you know, Mm -hmm. cultural backgrounds. And he decided to put that lyric together. 
and then we put the song together and took it to Nile, and Nile tracked it in the, at the power station. Would you believe that Nile Rogers and Jason Cassaro, the engineer, David Bowie's gear was being humped out of the power station. He just finished recording Let's Dance. That's right. <laughs> and then Louis literally the next day moved our gear in. No and tracked way. original sound. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then, then I couldn't that's believe it either. That's remember, amazing I color. Remember, I remember going back to some crappy, you know, midtown hotel and listening to the what we just recorded and going, what the fuck is this? I remember <laughs> seeing it going, I can't believe what I'm listening to, you know, this right. track, you know. And then we went back the next day into the studio and I was really excited because I knew we were doing something important. And then Niall said, you guys got to do some background vocals. So we all had to go, you know, try and do these vocals that we were trying to do. And he said, that's pretty good. I, I kind of like what you're doing, but we need something a little different. Mm. So he, he, do you mind if I call somebody? We're like, sure. So Daryl Hall walks through the door. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I love right? Daryl Hall. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, that's Daryl Hall, right? Now back then, it's hard to kind of put it in, exactly in perspective now in 2020 but back then that's a big deal it know? was a big 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 deal and so when Dow walked through, and here we were a bunch of young guys from australia and we're, you know this massive recording artist touring artist guy walks through the door mm -hmm. and we're like i can't believe this you know and if you listen to the chorus of original sin a lot of that is daryl you know singing uh, along with michael and kirk i think and maybe mm -hmm. john but you know it was a big deal and but why didn't we finish? Because we'd already set in place to, to do that album with the, a British producer called Nick Lornay in, in England. And I'm we talking recorded to him that. tomorrow night, by the way. Right, right. Yeah. Well, say hi to him for me. And we, we tracked the rest of the album with Nick, with Nick out in um, near Oxford at what was then Richard Branson's home mm, right. studio. Wow. Okay. And I remember going and talking to Richard Branson in his library, you know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it was it was really cool experience. Yeah. Except when we first got to the Manor, that was it. it was called the Manor, the studio. Mm -hmm. A lot mm -hmm. of famous acts recorded there. I got a, I, I think actually it might have been where Phil Collins recorded that huge drum roll in. Uh, oh, you know, in the air tonight. Uh, wow. <laughs> maybe I wow. think he would know anyway. Okay. So, okay. But the, <laughs> but the funny thing was is that when we got to the Manor. You know, when you you get like we're in this sort of like 14th century English countryside location mm -hmm. owned by then Richard Branson, and this, you know, you could tell it was something full on about it. Well, mm -hmm. there was this like little cemetery outside the back of the of the building, mm -hmm. and everyone ran in to, to to get the the bedrooms when they when they got there. And I wasn't in a hurry. I was just so you know interested in the studio and everything. And the only room left was one that overlooked the cemetery for me. <laughs> so, at, at, so at night I went to have a look out there. I'm like, oh dear, you know, as I'm looking at, mm -hmm. at the, you know. But anyway, full moon, the cemetery. I could all wow. think that was ghosts all night. But yeah. on, on a more serious note, but it was, you know, that, that's why we recorded the mm -hmm. rest of, of the okay. swing that particular, yeah, with with Nick. Um, yeah. And it was, wasn't that we didn't want to record with with Nile. In fact, what we should have done was go revisit that experience with Nile, but mm. then, then we wouldn't have done the three albums with with Chris Thomas. True, 
yeah, either, which very were true. extremely important recordings. Huge. So, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about Listen Like Thieves for a minute. I'm of the opinion that's my favorite NXS album. I think it's the uh, I think it's the most consistent. That's my personal opinion. In fact, I wanted to ask you one of my probably my favorite NXS deep track is One by One. have a story about one by one anything anything that you remember well a, a lot of the sound of the brass sort of instruments on that mm-hmm. is a prophet five with real trumpets oh okay yeah and i i think that's what what i used on that and also it's a funny track because it sounds like a marching band that would come mm-hmm. through your town <laughs> Yes, it does. You know what I mean? It's not really <laughs> a normal kind of rock pop song in that sense. And sort of, uh-huh. I always think of it as, or, or it could be a can-can uh-huh. bunch of girls throwing their legs up in the air yeah. or something, you know, yeah. on a stage. There's something yeah. strange about that that song. Uh-huh. But but I think as an album, I agree with you that it's a very cohesive recording mm-hmm. uh, as an album, mm-hmm. um, probably more so than most of our other albums. And I think that, the well obviously the producer chris thomas and the engineers do steve churchyard had worked together a lot before particularly i think with the pretenders Mm -hmm. and that's how we became well able to work with chris thomas as a record producer because on our first tour we did in the u.s in 83 uh we had some of the pretenders road crew from that period of time when they were touring had been on the adamant part of their crew oh yeah and they saw our band they liked the band they must have told chris thomas about us right mm-hmm. because next minute chris turns up in los angeles at the palladium and he's walking around on stage there's about four thousand people or whatever mm-hmm. and he's walking around on stage and i thought he was a nutter like a you know <laughs> weirdo or something because you know? he was he was just walking around on stage looking at the gear and stuff you know <laughs> Right, and then I, and I'm like, well, what's with this guy? You know, as I'm staying there, you know. Right, and then, and then, right, and then later on, he comes backstage and he realizes who he is. I'm like, oh wow, it's Chris. Okay, I get it now. And he, the, one of the first things he said to us as a group was, look, you know, I'm a big fan of your bands, but I don't like the way you've been recorded. Hmm. You know, what I hear you doing live 
is not what you are on your records, you know. And we thought a bit about that, and we said, well, what do you mean? So when we decided to make an album with him, with Chris, one of the things he did, which really stunned me, was instead of isolating everything and everything's quarantined or sampled or hammered into state, you know, perfected, there's that word, perfected. Yes. He, he said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is I want to know exactly what monitor system you guys use live. Hmm. And he bought, we bought all that equipment into the studio, can you believe? No way. Wow. Well, yeah. he really and brought he said, out the best in you guys, I think. Yeah. I mean, and he, he said, he said, this is what you sound like live. Mm. <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. And then, and we, and we, we all went, really? Like, and, and then when mm -hmm. we heard it back, we got what he was saying. In other words, mm -hmm. you know, instead of making it, trying to recreate what we were been doing before in the studio, we really did start to sound like what we sounded like live. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah. yeah. I think that's for, for an excess in a recording career sense where finally our recording career began to come together. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. In a big uh, way. Yeah. I was listening to an interview with you and talking about the success of what you need. I mean, that was, I think really your breakout song. There were some songs like Original Sin and and uh, the one thing that were getting played on MTV and on college radio, alternative radio, but What You Need is the one that's really, you know, hitting up the pop charts. And I remember you saying in there that when that started to happen to you, you felt you and Michael and probably the whole band were, it was hard to celebrate because you were feeling so much pressure that now that we've had a hit, now we have to do, keep doing this. We have to keep doing, we have to keep feeding this beast. You know? Right, right. Yeah, you got to feed the monster. But I think the thing is, it wasn't even, you're partly right. I think for me, what was also complicated about it was because we would, we had not just taken on Australia and the US, you know, Canada, whatever. We took on the world. Mm -hmm. So we'd already had 
number one hits in places like uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina mm-hmm. and in, in uh, France mm-hmm. and uh, in different countries in the world, Australia, whatever we'd had, you know, New Zealand, other countries. But we never had a consolidated massive hit mm-hmm. that just where everyone goes, oh, that, that's a big hit, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone knows it. And it gets out there. And, and the video we made for it I thought was really cool as well. Yep. But I, the point is, is that, that with What You Need, we that was the last song that we wrote and recorded on the album and no chris way. thomas took michael and i aside and said look you've got a really good album but you just don't have a cracker of a song that can really split this thing open you know mm-hmm. and of course michael and i put a lot of effort into everything to that point and we both kind of looked at each other like really you know mm-hmm. but we did and he said why don't you two go in you know in 48 hours, we'll meet back again with the entire band. We'll record whatever it is you guys come up with. And it was my brother, Tim, that said, well, you know what? As a clue, I've always loved this backing track that, that Andrew recorded and demoed, mm-hmm. which is the basic riffs and music and groove or whatever for what you need. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you start there? And, and that's what we did. We started working on that track. And that's what became what you need. And then we tracked it. And of course, the rest is history. But mm-hmm. when that went top five in the US, you're right. I remember getting a call from our manager at the time, Chris Murphy. And Chris said, aren't you excited to drink some <laughs> champagne or something? And I, and I, he was talking to me on a phone. Uh, it was a landline back then because it wasn't mobile phones. They didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I put down the phone. And I sat down for a minute. I felt really weird. Like I felt really strange. Like I was like, kind of careful what you wish for i yeah, sort of sat there for yeah. a minute i went what does that what does that mean exactly yeah, you know right. yeah uh and then you're right it's where i suddenly went oh fuck that means we have to go do that again or yeah. that's the biggest we ever got in our career you know yeah 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 and then michael was thinking exactly the same thing so i went mm-hmm. and talked to him about it and he said yeah i'm feeling the same like we whatever we do next better be good Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that anyone has ever followed it up with something quite as good as Kick. That's the grandest statement I can think of. Just one more, one more thing I was going to say, just really quickly. The video for what you need that you know was huge on MTV and it got like it got nominated for awards and stuff. But the funny thing was that with that video is when Mick Jagger saw it, he called Michael and said, hey, "You know, how the hell did you make that video? What's that technology you're using?" You know, because it didn't exist back then, uh-huh. apart from maybe Hollywood or something, you know. Right, right. And, but not for the average punter, you know. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mark was like, you really want to know? <laughs> and he said, what we did was we set up a motor drive camera and wow. we ran it like a film camera. And then each one of the, the negatives on the film were hand colored. Wow. That's it. And, oh. And, the part. The part that must have really split Mick into was when he said, yeah, and it cost us like 200 bucks to get done at the chemist, you know. <laughs> oh, Mick's never heard of such a thing. There's big budgets for yeah, everything Mick does. Right. <laughs> for 200 bucks. Right. Um, but, right. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's where some of that old school technology was kind of fun because, and I should add, it was also a Bolex film camera, I think. Mm. 16 mil that Richard Lowenstein had used, put together. But anyway, I'll shut up. Fire a question. Okay, okay. So, um, now, I, 
you're probably sick to death of talking about Need You Tonight. And there are a million other songs I would want to ask about too. But there, I, I am going to ask you about it because I was watching a video of you. Um, I think you were talking about the writing of it and you were on an acoustic guitar. never occurred to me that it would have been possible that this song was birthed on an acoustic guitar because the bass line is so funky it's it's about the drum and the bass to me and the, and how they're working together yes that electric guitar riff but it had never occurred to me that this may have come from an acoustic guitar and so i just want to know briefly where did the idea even come from what were you where were you sitting? What were you playing on? What did you hear in your head? Okay. In those years, I owned a, a small two-bedroom house in Sydney that I, I still had mortgages on. Mm. Trying to pay it off like <laughs> everybody else. And right. even though we were doing pretty big business back then, and I you know, arranged a flight from Sydney to Hong Kong mm. to go and write more of kick with Michael because he lived there. Mm -hmm. And when the cab turned up, I'd started working on what would become Need You Tonight. Mm -hmm. And I ran that. In fact, I got the drum program sitting back at home at the farm. Now I, I, re, I reprogrammed it again mm -hmm. last week because I'm going to try and shoot a little video of me playing it and showing nice. some folks what it is or whatever. And I started messing around with it, the little loop of that program that I did as a groove. I thought, that's, I kind of like that groove as I was listening to it. Mm -hmm. And then that idea for the guitar riff came into my head. And the next minute, I found myself recording. And I, then I had like a, I had a truncated bass sample I was using on, a, on, a, on, a, on an emulator too, which is like a sample, pretty sophisticated machine for back in those years I was messing around with. And... I'd made up the bass sound and then I, and that's the sound that ended up on the record mm -hmm, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, so I was messing around with you're right with the groove and the, and the feel of it or whatever. And the cab driver's like, well, Hey dude, you got to get in the car. I'm going to go. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh shit. Cause then I realized, you know, I, this is a weird moment. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I have to get on the plane, but I have to finish what I'm doing. Mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I got really anxious about it all. And I just, I kind of, I got a long way through what you would know now as the music and whatever for the song. And I threw it onto a, a I think back then a cassette with some ancient technology and mm -hmm. put it in my, in my pocket and ran out the door, locked the mm -hmm. door and ran out the door. 
got in the cab and flew to Hong Kong. When I got out the other end, I went to the Watson Cedahara estate where I was working with Michael. And I'd never been, I don't think, to Hong Kong before. So I was in a little bit culture shock. And then I mm-hmm. got to this place. And then he goes, like, what do you, what do you got? <laughs> and he always did that with me. So I'd, I'd come, I'd come, you know, I'd say, I've got these music ideas or, or, you know, a lyric or whatever I've got. What do you think? You know? And so I played him what I had on the cassette. And he goes, that's great. Give me a minute. And he, he pulls out a pad and a pen. And I haven't been in this building more than 10 minutes. And he wrote no what you would know yeah, yeah, as a lyric. <laughs> and then, which even more astounded me, once we put the packing of this onto like a two-inch tape at the studio where we were, he then tracked pretty much the vocal that you would recognize as a song. Hmm. That's how that happened. Wow. So he heard it yeah, in I'm his head weird. in that sort of like purring almost talk singing low, you know, he heard it like that in his head as he wrote it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But what's strange about that is that, it, you know, most people think that when Michael and I worked together, it was the classic songwriter thing of, you know, two acoustic guitars and you, mm-hmm. you don't know what you're doing and you call it scrambled eggs. And then you're, that's mm-hmm. not what happened. Like, you know, and a lot of the way we worked together was never like that. Uh, mm-hmm. The way we worked together was often more conceptual because Michael was not a trained musician. He never was classically trained in any instrument field. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't understand mm-hmm. music theory, but he understood the application of the theory from an art sense, you know, mm-hmm. and lyrically and with you know poetry and prose and all that. He was a genius. Mm-hmm. He could really... Mm-hmm articulate his thoughts and emotions with words, you know, and, and melodies really mm-hmm. beautifully. So when the yeah. two of us started working together, we were often coming at it from two different, very different angles. I was coming at it from sometimes a music theory idea. Mm-hmm. And he would come at it from a outer space, you know, yeah. where he wouldn't always put the timing of the melody or the lyric where other writers might normally have placed the lyric or the melody mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he didn't have any rule book. There was yeah. no rule book. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. I want to know what is the best and worst thing of being the biggest band in the world? Well, I don't know that we were ever the biggest band in the world. I think there was a time there for a while towards the end of the kick tour that we did. Yeah, we were doing some frighteningly big business. And then even in the early early 90s, we were playing stadiums, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, I agree with what you said before about In Excess. Some of the biggest, in fact, the biggest things we ever did as a band, we did in the 90s, actually. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, our biggest career moments, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think when you're a really big act, I think one of the things that I noticed when I started kind of meeting people who I'd always held in high esteem myself, whether they're musicians, songwriters or whatever, I started to meet some of these people and work with them. Like say in the nineties, we got to work with, with Ray Charles. He actually, mm-hmm. he did a duet with Michael on a Full Moon Dirty Hearts album.
sung a song that I wrote with Michael. I still I still wake up sometimes <laughs> pinching myself, thinking yeah. that actually happened. Yeah, you know, because I don't th- I don't think Mr. Charles actually actually ever worked with another rock band besides In Excess. I don't know of a time. I don't think he did. No. No. And 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 so I think back on that stuff, and I'm like, wow. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we didn't think at the time that all all of that was that important. But now I look back on it. I think when you talk about, you know, I guess success or fame and all that stuff, I don't see it quite like that. I, I look at it more as opportunities that the universe, mm. God, opens doors for you and you mm-hmm. choose which ones you go through, you know. Interesting. And then those things happen to you because you're fortunate, mm-hmm. you know, and to choose the right path for yourself, you know. You're given that choice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you do these things, or you or you don't. You know, you you go down these or through those doors, and what you do is what you do. But I don't. I'm kind of humbled with it all now. You know, at at the time, some of it just seems like so salubrious and champagne and froth and all the rest of it. But now I'm older, and I think about it, and I, I meditate on it sometimes. It's not so much being melancholy; it's just being real with it. And I look at it, and I go, "Well, I'm just a really fortunate person." Right human being to be associated with any of that and that I was exposed to something extraordinary with all these Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. and for most of the time we meant well as a group of people we didn't we didn't try to hurt anybody or mess Mm -hmm. anything around or you know we I guess we tried to but I think for all big artists in the world I'm a little off the track here what I was trying to say and I'll I'll try to articulate it better Mm -hmm. one thing I began to notice is I remember sitting out in the street in King's Cross many years ago with Michael and, and Elton John. Mm. And we were drinking coffee just out on out on a cafe in the middle of a very, you know, highly urbanized area in Sydney City. And they were just relaxed and enjoying themselves. And I sat there and I thought, there's these two iconic people <laughs> I'm sitting with, I'm having a coffee with. That's what I was and thinking when you said relaxed, this. Yeah. And or completely relaxed and no one's putting on a, a face or no one's trying to up up one with each other. We're just three human beings having a coffee. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time I replay some of this stuff in my head later on, I go, It's the part that a lot of people perhaps don't quite understand is that for a lot of really, really big artists, at the end of the day, you're just a person. Yeah. Yeah, who well, wants to sit and have a coffee with somebody? You know, it's just that that somebody are. is Elton John, and you're one of the, and you're Andrew it, it, Ferris, and Michael Hutchins is yeah. there, and so well, it's. I, I think, but I'm saying Michael and Elton. Yeah, I don't know about Andrew yeah. Ferris, but the thing is, I'm, all I'm saying is that at the end of the day, you're just a dude. Yeah, you know? yeah, I know. Like you, that, I get it. you know, and yeah. you, you just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's. I want to ask you about X for a minute. I like this album a lot. I do think at the time it was almost criticized a little bit as being too much of a copy. You know, it was too much of like a copy of Kick, but not quite as good. There are some great songs on there, and I want to know specifically what the story of The Stairs is. Because that song, to me, I remember hearing that so well, and it takes forever to start, but it's so beautiful. It doesn't sound like anything that I can think of in the NXS canon. In a room by a 
What is the story of the stairs and why did you make it the way that it was? Why did, did you think to yourself, this needs to be a long five minute long kind of opus that takes its sweet time to build? Tell me everything. Mm. I, well, first of all, X had a kind of rocky road uh, after kick. And I think it wasn't just because of the success of kick. I don't think it was just that. I think it was a combination of things going on. I think in my personal life, I had, was trying to sort of grow up a lot more. I'd gotten married. I was looking at starting a young family. And I had different, kind of mm -hmm. a different outlook on the world than what I was doing before that. Like mm -hmm. so many people, when you're single and before you have a family, life's one thing. And then when you bring children into the world or you commit to somebody, life's another thing. Mm -hmm. um, along those lines. But for me personally, so it was a personal thing more. That's how I felt. And I also listened to what the other band members in excess had said to me because Kick, Michael and I had been given the keys, as I call it, mm -hmm. to a spaceship by the mm -hmm. band to write all of Kick, the two of us, Michael and mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. But with, with it, once they saw the success of Kick, I think they kind of wanted the keys to the spaceship back again. Mm. You know? And I understood that. So some of them had said on during the Kick tour, you know, look, hey, we want to write be part of the writing process again um, and I'm, I don't know what I said but I took it on board and I registered that mm -hmm. you know so I started w writing a lot of X on acoustic guitar mm. and on, on piano you know as opposed to like drum machines and early technology with, with loops and all that I, I started going backwards in time more like my country my, my own Andrew Farris country music country rock outlaw rock thing I'm okay. doing now I started going more in that direction again being more rootsy with my writing but as it can't there's a, supposed to be a funny ending to this story because when i got in the studio with the band chris thomas was so expecting me to turn up with my music beds to be very much like kick you know mm -hmm, but they weren't because mm -hmm, i'd listened mm -hmm. to the other guys in the band and i 
I'd just written songs on acoustic guitar or piano or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was playing them in the studio. There, and Chris Thomas is like, where's your demos? I'm like, <laughs> I'm playing them to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And he's like, right. he was in shock. He's like, he's like, no, 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 go home and make some demos. And I was like, well, what? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, sure, all right. Mm -hmm. You know, because I thought the band wanted to be far more involved in the. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. sure. So, yeah. So I, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so, you know, I went back and I, I started doing what I did before on, on kick and started messing. But I was, this time, I, I always like to be ahead artistically before I walk in a room. So I felt a little uncomfortable because I wanted that experimental time, like I did with previous albums, to experiment a bit before I played the demos to people, but I was kind of out of time. So, you know, that, I think that's where X got into a kind of rocky road mm, start mm. where it wasn't as smooth as some previous experiences that I'd had because I didn't, hadn't had a lot of time or, or hadn't thought it was necessary to put the same kind of demos together. Got it. Okay. You know, so, yeah. um, but I, I, I think the point is, is that I was really happy with the stairs particularly i agree uh, there's certain tracks on that album that i think are really stand out i think the stairs is one uh, i think suicide blonde is mm -hmm. i think disappear is a cool track i think hear that sound is one of my favorite yeah. songs off x mm -hmm. uh, by my side uh, is kind of like a very melancholy song mm -hmm. about that feeling when you get when you're on tour or away from family you could be in the military or whatever and you just know that you don't know when you're going to see the people you love again, but you know you want to see them, you know. Mm -hmm. In the dark of night Those small hours Uncertain and anxious I'm to call you Full of strangers Some call me friend But I wish you were So close to me In the dark of night Those small hours I drift away When I'm with you That's what that song was all about. And it was a little bit, I think in some ways, X was a little bit darker than Kick mm. as an album. Mm. Like it, I could see that. It's, yep. it's a little, you know, whereas mm -hmm. Kick was very, a lot of it was very optimistic and, yes. you know, pro kind of like, yeah, you know, whereas X was starting to get more, you know, introverted. I could um, see that. And I don't know if all, that was maybe also Michael's, you know, kind of own... He did a lot of self-exploration, I mm -hmm. think, Michael, after Kick album. I think he started to really examine not just life, but himself more mm -hmm. and more. That makes sense. Whereas, whereas I, I've only started doing that last week. 
<laughs> That's right. Um, I should no, say. I'm just, I'm, I'm just joking with you. Right. Yeah. I should say. Um, I know you didn't write it, but Dis- disappear is my number one favorite in excess song of all. I come up, with, I come up with these lists sometimes, Andrew. And uh, the one thing is number two, and number three is not enough time. Which brings us to welcome wherever you are. First of all, I have to say, I've never understood the album cover when six of the best looking guys in history are in one band, <laughs> yeah. and you put three awkward little teenagers on there. I don't know what you're doing. But secondly, that album should have been big. And when I talked to Mark Opitz about it, which he comes back in the fold to produce. He's baffled because you guys chose not to tour with that one. And he thought if you had, it would have changed everything. How do you feel about that time? Mark's partly right and partly wrong. Okay. uh, Where he, what I mean by that is, well, first of all, you're probably right about the album cover, although I like it. I think what was particularly complicated about uh, that whole period of time was that we sort of started to tour that album and it went in at number one on the British music charts, on the album charts, mm-hmm. which was pretty insane. So, but I, I think, I think what happened was we decided to, we'd done so much touring on previous albums. Like we'd go out after kick for 18 months. So we'd go out on X album after the X album for 14 months. And so we all kind of knew what was coming. <laughs> Once we finished recording, welcome to have yard. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like somewhere between really exciting and a sentence. Like, oh, oh okay, that means I'm going to be away from my family and friends for 14 months. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we thought, well, why don't we just do another album? Like, pretty much soon after Welcome to Have You Are, and then mm-hmm. tour both albums. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that was kind of our thinking in the background, but unfortunately... You know, Michael had an accident in between. He hurt himself, and then we had to take a little time out for him to recover, yeah. and sort of which he did later on, mm-hmm. and and get back into who we understood, and he understood himself to be. And then we, you know, we went touring after that. But unfortunately, it was that that really messed up a lot of that period of time for us as a group, and it was really a complicated period of time as well for a lot of things, I guess, in Michael's personal life, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't really want to go into. And I think it was very complex in his life. And all of those things 
were then, you know, for the rest of us guys in the band, we were watching and, and, you know, and hoping for the best for him. But ultimately when you're adults, you make decisions on your own, yeah. you know, for the choices you make in life, you know, and you can try to, you know, advise someone or suggest things to them. Right. But, in the end, you know, like I said, you're given those choices to make and you're going to make them or not, you know? So, but the last album that we made together when Michael was alive, which was, um, Elegantly uh, Wasted. The, that's right. Elegantly Wasted. about um i remember you know calling michael up and saying hey i've been you know reading about you in the newspapers are you okay mm. you know and he said i'd love to make an album and mm. i said yeah okay well i'm let's do it so we started writing again for that last album and he was very passionate about it yeah um very determined lyrically and and emotionally to put that album together very passionate in fact i yeah. think the most passionate I'd seen him in years. Hmm. So that I, I think was important for him. And he liked the camaraderie of touring with the band, uh, being out with us guys on the road. He said he felt safe with us. And, you know, so I think that was a, but it was a tumultuous period in his life. Yeah. But I think yeah. that as an album, I think Elegantly Wasted has some really interesting tracks on it too. I think it, it's a very, very dark album in some places, but in other parts of the album I, I like it i think it's really kind of like it's got this swagger to swagger to it yep. that i don't know how to describe whatever it is that's going on in that thing but i listen to it now and i get chills sometimes because more for me as a human being i just remember where i was and what we were doing at those moments in our lives and i some of it wasn't particularly pleasant or enjoyable yeah. not so much as a band or you know, getting on as people, as a band. I'm not talking about that, just in our personal lives. Right. You know, my mm -hmm. mother my mother had passed away in 1995. Mm -hmm. uh, so for my brothers and I, for John and, and, and Tim, mm -hmm. Farris, as well as myself, that obviously affected the three of us. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there was a lot of things about around that happened in, in that part of our, our lives, not just our career, that, you know, has an impact on people and it's hard to explain in the tyranny of time and distance goes by. Yeah. It's kind of easy to look back on certain things and, and reflect on them without any emotional yeah. capacity. But when, when you're experiencing them at the time, they're very real. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm a big fan of both those last two albums, uh, Elegantly Wasted and especially Full Moon Dirty Hearts. I feel like NXS is just continuing to be as strong as they always have, even though those albums are not, I don't know, they're not viewed as favorably or seen as being, I don't know, they're sort of seen as like past the prime albums or something like that. But I like them both a lot. And um, that's when it gets sad because I, the one and only time I was able to see NXS in concert, I grew up in Utah and you guys came through Park City on for elegantly wasted around June or I'm sorry July or August I believe of that summer and then Michael passed away in November I think it's just sad to consider what what could have been and what if and I know you live with that every day and as a big fan of yours we live with it too in our own way just imagining what could have been had one of the greatest bands in history been able to stay together and keep doing what you were doing because it was there was no drop or dip in quality from my perspective and from the perspective of a lot of people that love you so you just never know is the, what i'm saying i guess it's a shame you know well, I, pre I appreciate that john and uh i, I guess it in, if you really you know uh as you say you know are very passionate about being a fan of what we did i really appreciate that and it must be somewhat cathartic for you to be able to express those feelings. It is, if you can't tell. That's I've good. been living with these that's for good. years. Yes, yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. that's but, it. You know, that, that's, that's one of the big things I try to tell folks. That, you know, as my dad always used to say, no one gets through life without help from other people. And mm -hmm. if you've got things you're storing up in the back of your mind that are troubling you or you in your heart and you've got to deal with stuff but you don't know, you know what to do, the best thing to do is to share it with someone you trust and to be able to get those emotions and feelings out and say things because down the track you're going to help yourself and yeah. maybe even help someone else yeah you know? yeah it's true i hope that nxs fans that are listening to this are um relating they're shaking their head as they listen saying yes i feel that way too i love them too you know i hope that that's what's happening anyway um okay well you've uh you know we've covered pretty much everything i um i did have one kind of odd question left is there are there any in excess songs that you consider to be kind of clunkers or ones where you're like oh i don't know i never really liked that one i would do that differently now if i had a chance are there is there anything like that out there <laughs> i i don't know uh i mean i think one of the very early songs okay that we recorded i love the song but I have no idea why I put the lyrics together, which is We Are The Vegetables. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> right?
that's one of the parts of the excess that I always really liked being a part of with the group is that we had a sense of humor about mm-hmm. ourselves. You know, yeah. it's like like that part of in excess was something I always, you know, was was enjoying. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that you know we we could have a laugh at ourselves or other people or whatever when they're due to be laughed at. Mm-hmm. You know, or with I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, probably the only thing I'd add to all of this interview is I got really excited about the idea of of, of it going exploring and and also to to not go down the same roads as that I always went down with an excess. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. go do different things, you know, yeah. and explore yeah. things I don't know anything about, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, th- well, that, that's part of my journey now is to, is to do that. And but look, anyway, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. This was uh, this was a dream, a dream come true. Thank you so much. All right, there you have it, Andrew Ferris. That meant a lot to me, if you couldn't tell. Being able to say those things to him and get those thoughts and opinions off my chest mattered a lot to me. He could tell, too. It's a little embarrassing, to be honest. But, (laughs) whatever. That was my moment. I got it. And uh, thank you to Andrew for allowing me to talk to him. That meant the world to me. Um, and go check out, as I said, the only two songs that are out there that I know of as of now are Come Midnight and Good Mama Bad. And I don't know when the album's going to come out, neither does he, but follow his his uh, website. It, the link to it is right there in the show description. And uh, st- keep tabs of, on Andrew. It'll be out there eventually. Also, I wanted to mention, if you're a big NXS fan, there's a great new podcast out there called NXS access all areas and they go through like the whole history they're counting down best videos best songs albums reviews all that kind of stuff and you know <clears throat> eric miller joe Royland, and i recorded with we, we had the intention of starting our own in excess uh podcast on the pods and sods network but uh, it's never come out and we did it over a year ago And uh, I think Eric just decided he was more interested in other things. So hopefully we get back to that at some point. I don't know when, but it's out there. It'll show up eventually. Now, the next two weeks, we are talking to two of the most decorated uh, and successful session guitarists of all time. Both are also incredible songwriters and producers. So our conversations run the whole gamut. I will tell you, one of these guys is on one of the immediate family members. That is in two weeks. Next week is someone else. And if you like those long career-spanning conversations where we get to touch on everything, all the ins and outs, that's what's coming up the next two weeks. Huge thank you, as always, to Yan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. You guys know by now you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. If you want to get more involved with us and make a donation or become a member of the Patreon page, please do. The link to that is also in the show description here. There are a couple of tiers. You can win some swag. You can contribute to interviews. Your choice, okay? Thank you, everybody. We love you.